Hello and welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's Tuesday, September 6th, and we're coming into you today from three time zones. Um, Jay's off today to take care of some family stuff, but I'm still here in Tacoma, Washington. Um, today we have two incredible guests. I'm really, really excited about this show because we sort of get something that is pretty rare, I think, in, in life to see, which is the anatomy of a huge win on the left. Um, and we get to hear about this win from two people who were instrumental in making it happen. Anne Larson and Elaine Shermer, who are members of the Debt Collective and the strike debt movement that got us debt relief in the United States. Um, we know we have listeners from all over the world, um, and uh, we want to contextualize this a little bit too, um, because there is obviously an international context for education um, and healthcare uh, that is a lot more compassionate in places other than the United States, it seems to me. But um, anyway, welcome, Eleni and Anne. Great to be here. Great to be Thanks, here. Tammy. Anne Larson is joining us from Utah. Anne and I got to know each other, I think, in 2019 when I interviewed her about strike debt. Um, she's an organizer, a freelance writer, a former grocery store worker, which she's been writing a lot about, and she co-founded The Debt Collective. Um, with our pal Astra Taylor, the filmmaker and my colleague at Lux Magazine, and also wrote Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition, which is on Haymarket Books. Eleni Shermer is joining us from Montreal. Eleni is a fantastic freelance writer and organizer also with the Debt Collective. Um, she's a postdoc at the Social Justice Center at Concordia University and a research associate with the Future Finance Initiative at the Luskin Institute on Inequality and Democracy at UCLA. She has a PhD from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Um, so obviously the three of us are going to go deep into the strike debt movement and what happened um, since 2011, really, maybe even earlier to make this win happen. Um, but first, we'd be remiss not to talk about a friend of that movement, um, an intellectual mentor, I think, to the three of us, it's fair to say, and a bunch of pod listeners. Um, the writer, Barbara Ehrenreich, has passed on. Um, the news was delivered, I guess, a couple of days ago by her son, um, our pal, the writer, Ben Ehrenreich. Um, so first of all, condolences to the family, obviously. Um, but Eleni and Anne, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the influence of Barbara. Um, gosh, so much to say about her, right? DSA in these times, Economic Hardship Reporting Project, um, her feminist texts, nickel and dimed, of course, um, her controversial takes on PMC, which I feel like we talk too much about. Um, but Anne, do you want to start? I know that you've gotten um, support from EHRP, an institute that she founded, for some of your reporting. Um, what did Barbara mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I, there's just, I almost don't even know what to say about the influence of this person, you know, in yeah. my life. She's just such a giant to me and has been for, you know, decades. Um, I wouldn't be able, able to do the work I do now with EHRP, if not for Barbara and, 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 the, and the fact that she founded that organization and understood that, you know, the media is 80% people who went to, you know, um, Ivy League and other top colleges, and that needs to change. And we need to have stories in the press from people who've experienced economic hardship and who work for a living. Um, that's just such a simple and profound concept that has really just changed so many lives, including mine. Um, what I would also say about her is that, you know, everybody talks about um, Nickel and Dimed and Fear of Falling and all mm -hmm. these wonderful books that she wrote about about class, about low-wage work. And obviously, those are wonderful texts that I've read several times. Um, I'm always struck by her talent as a writer. I really yeah. think of Barbara as a writer first and a sort of scholar activist second. Um, 
And, you know, I remember when I first read Nickel and Dime when it came out, just it seems sort of, uh, it may, be, may seem a little silly, but I was struck by how you, it was surprised me that, that she could write so beautifully about such grim subjects. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, like literal so, shit. <laughs> right, like, like people who are just living like the shittiest lives and doing this grim work in these horrible um, places in Walmart. And she, she wrote so well and she was so funny. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's just always, it's just a rare gift to be able to do that. Um, I also think, you know, I think my favorite work of hers is actually um, the texts that deal with, you know, a broader range of questions about the meaning of life. You know, she, she was, mm. she, sh- she shouldn't get pigeonholed into this person who always wrote about like bad jobs and, um, and low wages and those kinds of things. Like she, she really had a very expansive um, intellectual, uh, expansive range of interests. Um, she was an expansive thinker. Um, and she really dwelled a lot on existential questions. Like people should check out, if you don't know it, her memoir, Living with the Wild God, um, which is about yeah, some strange, ex- it's so great. It's about some strange experiences that she had when she was an adolescent. Um, I mean, she's a commit, a secure, obviously a committed atheist and has been, had been for years, but then she kind of had these strange mystical experiences when she was a teenager that, you know, it didn't turn her away from her atheism, but definitely troubled, you know, any easy conclusion that she had about what we're all doing here on this planet. Um, and, you know, in that same vein, there's a wonderful essay um, that I think maybe not a lot of people know uh, that she wrote, I think it was in The Baffler just a couple of years ago. And it's about Paleolithic cave art. <laughs> um, <so> great. <laughs> and she talks about artists from you know multiple millennia ago who painted caves, mostly images of animals. Um, they, the, the artists rarely painted human figures. And when they did, the human figures were like just stick figures and they had no faces. <laughs> um, so she describes these paintings in the piece and, and, and what, and tells us what scholars have said about them over the years. And, you know, but she tries to figure out what it all means about human existence, yeah. about what we're doing on the planet, about time, about morality. Um, oh so gosh. Yeah, yeah, just an incredibly expansive intellect, interested in a lot of, of things, big existential questions, but always grounded, rooted in, you know, material reality and the daily struggles mm-hmm. of working people. And I mean, she's just irreplaceable. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. Mm. Um, gosh, I don't know a lot of that stuff that you were just talking about. So I'm kind of excited to see it. Yeah. Um, I just scribbled a bunch of the titles. I know. Just... <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Check yeah. it out. She's, Elaine, she's what great. about you? Like, are there particular things politically or? You know, I think I had the, probably what I would, what I hope is a very quintessential Barbara Ehrenreich uh, falling in love moment, which is that I read her in, I read Nickel and Dimed in a, in a college class in, it must've been like 2004 or something. So a couple years after it came out and it was probably the first time in my formal education that there was a meaning that I participated in a meaningful conversation about class where we know. all, the people in the room yeah. were presented with class as something we were part of. Um, I went to like a fancy liberal arts college that put me, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Uh, and most of my <laughs> classmates didn't, weren't, you know, we were sort of yeah. sitting at different sides of the table. And this was like reading Nickel and Dime was just this experience where we were first person, you know, we were asked to confront a first person narrative of class. And it was just like really powerful. I think I really, like Anne, was very struck by the writing and the kind of like the question asking these sort of big political ideas as they sort of manifest in 
a person's life. Um, yeah. It's, she raises, she raised the bar, you know, I think probably I would imagine the three of us aspire to, you know, to, 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 to follow that method of these big ideas and how they work through a life. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely true for me. I feel like, um, I'm glad that you guys both talked about the sort of literary quality of the work too, because there is this sort of deep compassion and respect, obviously for the subjects. Um, and so even though, um, yeah, if, even if they are in very difficult circumstances, work-wise or otherwise, like this kind of beauty comes through yeah. about their lives. So yes. you never have this feeling of, oh, she's like, you know, she's slumming it with these right. people who are so pathetic, never. right? There isn't any of that kind of patronizing quality that you often see actually in a lot right. of sort of right. social justice or economic journalism. Right. Um, I think the first thing I actually read by her was that collection Global Women, mm. which is like a sort of ancient and kind of dry text, but it's about domestic work all over the world. And she really did so much for the domestic workers movement domestically in the United States and otherwise. Um, so I think also just like as a feminist thinker, she's been so important, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Do you guys want to say anything about the PMC? There's a lot of chatter about <laughs> um, what, what she said about that. My understanding is of her take on the PMC, which she obviously covered with her former husband, is, um, is that it was a bit of a warning about these sort of cross-class coalitions, right? And what happens when you have highly educated people and elites in spaces of organizing where they want to be part of working class movements. Um, but there are sometimes these barriers. Um, I don't read her as condemning and saying that people of who are elites can't participate in working class movements, but rather that, you know, as uh, to say that these are some of the difficulties that may arise. Um, but I think it's been a term that's been sort of abused um, in a lot of contexts. Um, do you guys have thoughts, <laughs> Eleni? My only hot take really is that I was surprised. I remember reading about PMC stuff. And when I first, like, you know, the first time I was sitting in the library and I was like, wait, it can't be that Barbara Ehrenreich that wrote about PMC. And like <laughs> going and looking through and just being like, this is a totally different writer. The voice, the, it's a different, it's a really, it's a different genre that that yeah that thing and I think that uh, was always my question of like what would that have concept have become if she had kind of been able, if she had used sort of walked it through a different set of voices if she had I put see. more characters and that was always my uh -huh. question of like huh would it have been sort of how would we understand Barbara Ehrenreich PMC if she had given us the nickel and dime <laughs> version of it instead of this like more sociological you know, analysis. I see. Yeah. I guess we should say also it stands for professional managerial class um, and people will see it, see it bandied about. Um, and do you have any thoughts on this controversial term? I mean, nothing more than that's already been said. I just, you know, I think she, she hits upon a dynamic that that's real. I mean, I've been in enough activist left spaces um, and I've, I've worked in a grocery store as someone who has a higher education, you know, a graduate degree and, you know, uh, I think it's a way of saying class is real and it's mm -hmm. not always just about your relations to the means of production, right? There are other ways a class experience gets produced and reproduced. And I mean, I yeah. remember there, there's an interview that she gave a few years ago um, where she told a story about a, a meeting that she was having or that she was participating in with some, I think, laid off factory workers in the Midwest. Yes, or something. I love this. Like it was in adjunct, Yeah, some adjunct mm -hmm. professor shows up. You know, and as a former adjunct, I'm sympathetic, <laughs> but the adjunct was like, oh, I'm sick of hearing white men talk. And here are these like laid off factory workers from like Indiana or something. Yes. And, you know, it's it's that that happens a lot, that kind of comment, that kind of interaction. I think anybody who's been in activist spaces or in organizing meetings has 
you know, has seen this, has participated in this, has, you know, cringed at this. And so, yeah, she, I think she identified a dynamic that that's real and that does deserve to be talked about and, and its roots yeah. understood for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your reflections. And um, I think we'll all be going back to a bunch of stuff that she's written and kind of rediscovering this, the workings of this incredible mind. So um, yeah, rest in peace, Barbara. Mm -hmm. um, all right, but let's get to kind of the meat of the podcast today. So um, so for listeners who haven't been following this closely, so you probably know that even if you're outside the United States, that in the United States, education costs a ridiculous amount of money, just like healthcare, just like a lot of goods that in other places are public goods that are goods that are paid by the state, um, which means by all of us. Um, but in the United States over the past few decades, especially in education, we have seen a pattern where everything has become privatized. Costs have gone up. We've seen it bloated administrative, administrative layers, bloated capital campaigns that have inflated the cost of education. And a number of years ago, um, really tied to the Occupy movement, as I understand it, and as I experienced it when I was doing a little bits of Occupy stuff, um, there started being the, the sort of, um, I don't know, just like incredible movement that you guys were starting to organize around debt and around student debt in particular. And we've seen now the fruits of that in an extraordinary win about, a, I guess, just a few weeks ago. Um, from President Biden, who in response to this social movement work has announced that he is going to wipe out $10,000 in student loans for 43 million Americans and up to 20,000 for those who received Pell Grants, which is a kind of public grant in the United States um, to attend college. Um, approximately 20 million people will have their balances completely wiped out. So that's no small feat. Um, I know as a, as a sort of policy win, it's probably less than you guys wanted. So we should talk about that as well. Um, but just to take a moment to celebrate and to say, like, this is pretty extraordinary. Totally. Um, and as I said at the top, I think it's, it's very rare to see essentially a very direct link where even politicians are admitting this is because of the public pressure and work of activists. Mm -hmm. um, you don't hear that very much. Um, so where to begin? Um, I might start with you, Anne, because I think you entered this movement a bit earlier than Eleni, and then we can go to you, Eleni. Um, Anne, how did you get involved in this student debt work? Um, give us a sense of those sort of early years of this movement work. Yeah. Um, so I was a graduate student in New York City, um, and I was teaching um, at the same time, undergraduates, and I was taking on debt to earn my degree. And then I would sit in a classroom with students who were also taking on debt to earn their degrees. <laughs> and they were taking on debt to earn a degree that I was teaching in a pro, you know, as, as a graduate student in a program where I was also taking on debt. Um, and I just, I thought about that a lot and it bothered me. And I, I knew it wasn't, it hadn't always been like that. You know, I knew that um, CUNY in particular, where I was teaching at the time had been free um, from the 19th century until about 1976. Um, mm. And so, but, you know, I felt sort of alone in this, in this critique, in this, I mean, everybody was in debt, obviously, many mm -hmm. of my peers and all of the students were taking on debt, but there didn't seem to be a public conversation about it. Is this how you want to organize things? Is this, is this correct? Is this morally just? Um, and then Occupy started. And I was not, a, you know, by any means a founder of the Occupy movement or anything like that. I just, when it began, I went. And mm -hmm. one of the first meetings I stumbled into was on student debt. And, you know, it's hard to describe now to people the 
the intense sense of like relief and just real joy in the fact that, oh my God, here are all these other people who have been feeling like I've been feeling for years and we've never met and we've never talked about it. And here they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, it was a profound, you know, um, experience of just finding your people um, that I'll never forget. Mm. And, you know, so long story short, I began going to meetings that were organized at Zuccotti uh, with people that wanted to work on student debt, wanted to talk more about it, wanted to organize a campaign. And I became over like the next nine years, you know, eight or nine years, just deeply involved in in various iterations of the campaign to convince the federal government to cancel student debt and make public college free. Mm. And why do you think student debt was tied to Occupy? I mean, there were all these different working groups, but what was it about that moment that started this conversation, do you think? I mean, I just, th- yeah, I think that, first of all, it was a lot of folks like me who were educated, who who kind of came up in a generation where we were told, hey, if you get an education, get that college degree, you're, the, you know, the world is your oyster, doors are going to yeah. open for you, everything's going to be fine, it's good debt, your student debt's good debt, you're going to make right. this investment in yourself. Um, and then to, you know, after, especially after the tw- 2008 financial crisis, and, um, and you saw the way banks were bailed out, the way corporations were made whole, and there, at that moment, there was just no better illustration of of the, of the double standard. And so, um, I think people at Occupy were coming, were just coming off the financial crisis. Many of them had were deeply in debt. It was a lot of educated folks that gathered at the park. It was yeah. just a really fertile moment to put those two things together. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about the Rolling Jubilee? This is kind of one of your guys's earlier projects. It got a lot of yeah. attention, and I—I I mean, it's a—it's extraordinary how much money was involved in this. Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't even remember the numbers now. But so what? You know, we knew that um, colleagues and uh, colleagues that I met around Occupy, Thomas Goki, Andrew Ross, uh, Astra Taylor, Laura Hanna, began working on this project, and many others. I mean, I'm not naming yeah. all, but um, there was a—you um, can buy debt on the secondary debt market for pennies on the dollar, and then write it off. We discovered that this people people around Occupy have been talking about this for a while. We knew this was possible, so mm-hmm. um, we we did it. We began raising money. Um, we had a telethon in New York City at the in Greenwich Village at a nightclub um, where we raised <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. I don't remember the totals now. And then we were able to cancel, you know, several million in in medical debt at that time. We canceled a bunch of medical debt. Um, it was a big spectacle. Lots of bands came and played, musicians, performers. It was lots of fun. So it brought together, you know, a lot of the, everybody who came to the show had like one of those name tags that said, hello, my debt is, and they to have the, the oh, amount nice. of debt yeah. they owed. <laughs> so it was another kind of like, again, we were still in this, in Zuccotti Park was, had been raided and um, and uh, raided by the police by then. That was finished. But it, it, was a mo- it was still part of this cultural moment where people were, were coming out as debtors and saying, hey, you know, like, I owe a hundred grand and, um, and, but it was also the spirit of, of sort of fun. Um, it was a great time. Um, we, (laughs) we, we like broke open a pinata at the end and raised all this money and we were able to cancel all this debt for, for really strangers. And and at the time, like we didn't know, will people donate to cancel the debt of people they don't know strangers? Um, this was 2012 and they did, they donated on mass. Um, mm-hmm. And we were able to cancel millions of debt, millions of dollars in debt for medical debtors. And, you know, at the time, it was it was proof of concept of a couple of things, you know, that people will 
donate money to help people that are that they don't know and will never meet. That um, debts can be written off. They can be written off. They are written off all the time, just not to the debtor. Um, and so really the only thing standing in the way of mass debt relief is um, is political will. And also, you know, it was, it was one of the first times when we started talking about Medicare for all, what we now call Medicare for all, you know, publicly funded healthcare for everyone. Yeah. Um, that, that was the real solution to this. And so it was just a moment to bring together, you know, the broader argument and the proof of concept. Yeah. And I remember David Graeber's ideas being pretty influential. I mean, obviously to the founding obviously. of Occupy period, but, um, you know, yeah. his book debt and just this notion of kind of, um, yeah, it, it being sort the of the notion of Jubilee, thing, right? right? It like, was rooted yeah. in, in debt the first 5,000 years. Absolutely. And, and exactly. what he wrote about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Eleni, you around the time of Occupy Wall Street, where were you? What were you thinking? Yeah, yeah. So I um, had just started, I had right before Occupy, I had been working as a, a waitress and a barista and a bartender, and I didn't mm-hmm. have health insurance, and I was really f- fucked by that. Um, and so I made a sort of set of elaborate, <laughs> complex decisions that becoming a special student and applying to a graduate school program would be a better way for me to waste <laughs> my time to get health insurance than like, whatever, slinging espresso and was able to do this by sort of a strange set of circumstances, got into a graduate program, got health insurance. That was great. Mm-hmm. But the real thing that happened to me was that my first or second semester of graduate school, I was in at UW-Madison and um, Scott Walker was elected governor of Wisconsin within a few days or weeks of taking office. He passed this draconian bill that that radically curtailed, if not eliminated public sector uh, collective bargaining. And so my sort of entree into graduate school was really an entree into like, you know, the, the meeting point of labor movements and social movements on the floor of the Capitol building in Madison. Um, And this was incredibly radicalizing. I, I, I came from a radical family. I had like politics, but it's really different to have politics and have act on politics and to yeah. kind of be in this sort of high intensity mode. So when Occupy happened a few months after that, I mean, this, the, you know, that was very sort of shaping of my world that the act 10 in Wisconsin was just like very, very formative for me and basically raised a number of questions for me that I like an idiot thought the best way to answer would be to write a dissertation about. Uh, so that sort of set me off on a whole rabbit chase of, of writing this dissertation about labor movements in Wisconsin. Um, but when Occupy happened, it was really, it was really exciting to see. And I, I felt really this sense of like, wow, something's changing. You know, the, the grammar for me, the, yeah. what happened was that there was, there was the Arab Spring. There was the was in you know January or February of 2011. Yeah. Then later in February was this Wisconsin uprising. Then actually, what I associate prior to Occupy was actually the Chicago teacher strike. That's right. Um, yeah. There was so much. Which actually, that year. no, that I don't remember if that was 2011 oh, was that or 2012. I think it was yeah, 2012 actually. actually. Yeah, yeah. But they all kind of ran together right. in this like it was like 12 months of like the world could change. Like it really could change. We certainly will all change. Trying to change the world was probably actually the most certain thing I could say. Um, And sort of fast forward a number of years to the arrival of COVID. And, you know, I was at that point, I was finishing, I I became very active in in labor politics in Wisconsin. It was president of my grad union, very active in my grad Mm -hmm. union. Um, 
And if there's any listeners who are from Wisconsin or involved in the labor movement in Wisconsin, the kind of defeat that we suffered there is unfortunately probably very recognizable to many around the world of just like this, this like, just the, like people really had little hope and little energy. Um, yeah. And when COVID happened, even though certain things had changed, like in Wisconsin, for example, Scott Walker was no longer the governor. We had a democratic governor there, you know, we were still living under a regime of austerity yeah. that had existed for the last decade and had COVID was only intensifying. And that's is when kind of I, as we sometimes say in the debt collective began to put the debt goggles on <laughs> mm-hmm. and began seeing the world through this lens of debt in new ways that the, the, Labor, to me, it wasn't a question of, you know, people being ransacked, labor unions being ransacked, but creditors just sort of ransacking all kinds of institutions. So so I guess yeah. specifically I, in, at, at UW-Wisconsin, I saw, you know, people being furloughed and workers being cut, the lowest worker, lowest paid workers on, on the campus being, you know, asked to make the most sacrifices in the face of COVID. And at the same time, the university was paying millions of dollars for to maintain its debt service to creditors. And to me, this was a huge question of like, why is that? Like, Scott Walker isn't here. Why is this still happening <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to public higher ed in Wisconsin? And that's when I began to really understand debt, that, that, you know, when I sort of came in closer contact with the Debt Collective and began to really understand how debt is this like just totalizing apparatus that takes over, you know, it just, it's, it's uh, a very powerful um, vector of inequality Mm -hmm. that structures so much of, of how, you know, these arrangements that in some ways I began to see labor and workers movements as sort of the second verse. And the first verse was arrangements set up by creditors and debtors. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what in, was it this idea? Cause you hear this from housing people sometimes like, sure, we can, you know, increase our wages and improve things through unionization. But if the landlord takes your entire paycheck, there's no point. That's right. Exactly. Um, so was that exactly. the sort of thing you're talking about here where you're just seeing like different forms of debt eat up people's paychecks? You've seen different forms of debt eat up people's paychecks. Absolutely. I mean, this was like, I think a big, we can maybe, we can talk more about this later, but a big thing that happened in the last 12 months of of the student debt fight, but was getting labor unions to really come on board to be like every win that we have at the bargaining table is going to be undermined as long as workers are having to go and pay hundreds, yeah. if not thousands of dollars a month for, for student loans that they had to take to basically get these damn jobs in the first place. Right. So yeah. yeah, like that. And then, and also I think, you know, for me seeing the institutional side of it too, is just that like austerity is not something that's like you have a bad boss that makes you cut wages. It's like the, for me, a real, the really a turning point, this sounds very nerdy, but a real turning point was when I sat down and I read the Moody's rating methodology for for (laughs) colleges and universities. And I understood like, wow, the stronger a labor union is at a public institution, the worse their credit score is. So you could have like a really progressive, you know, board of directors or a progressive governor but they're actually going to, you know, that wants to empower workers, but they are going to end up having to pay more by the way this whole damn system is set up um, to, to, to borrow money. Uh, so, so to me, that was like also just like a really 
understanding that it's people, but also this whole, all these, these institutions are wrapped up in it too. So sorry, just a sec on that. So Moody's, if folks don't know, is a credit rating agency. You're saying that if there's a strong labor presence in an institution, they are less reliable that's from a, seen from as a, borrow, a borrowing from, a lending perspective. Exactly. So. <laughs> a creditor might say, gosh, you know, we might not be able to get our loans paid back if the workers right. go on strike. If the workers <laughs> are really powerful here and they, you know, have, you know, it's the same for higher ed. It's like really strong tenure protections have a similar function too. Is that like, you know, that could be, that could reprioritize resources. Yeah. In a way that's damaging <laughs> for the creditor because the creditor just wants to make sure that it gets paid back when it says it's going to get paid back. Eleni, I was curious to you, right before um, we came on air, you were saying that you have family in Greece. Was the Greek debt, what we call the Greek debt crisis, was that at all influential for you? What were you thinking about that after? Well, it was definitely, I mean, the Syriza moment, I like, it was definitely like this part of this story of like, wow, yeah, there's these sort of huge totalizing. The Greek debt was definitely, you know, you could just things came into focus, the sort of global debt structures came into focus with the the Greek crisis in 2008 Mm -hmm. and 2009. But then the kind of like the Syriza moment where it's like, was I I kind of consider that part of this like 2000, let's say 2010 to 2012 wave of just like, wow, things maybe, things are really bad, but maybe they could be different. Um, Mm -hmm. And Syriza was, there was a flicker of that too. So for me, that was, but yeah, absolutely. The Greek debt crisis was, uh, exposed debt as this like fundamental structuring of, of the world. Yeah. Um, Anne and Elena, um, I guess as let's get into a little bit of kind of the anatomy of the organizing. So when we talk about the debt collective, what is that? How do people across the country connect with each other across space? Um, this, you guys described it as kind of like coming out as a debtor or, you know, putting your, your debt goggles on, um, how do you get people to that point, you know, from this point of kind of being embarrassed about their debt or being alone in their debt? I mean, I think, as I said, you know, meeting other people who are in your situation is a really powerful thing. I think with the early campaign that we ran with student debtors who had attended a, a for-profit college, which hopefully we could talk more about. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was really about um, explaining the ways that they had been screwed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... I, it's not, they knew they'd been screwed. They knew they had been scammed. It's about, uh, it was about sitting down and saying, yes, you were correct. You're the feeling that you have, the idea that you have about how you've been, um, how you've been treated, the bill of goods that you've been sold is correct. Um, and we are here to support that. And we are here to also add a little bit of information about the fact that the U S department of education is responsible for the fact that you're in debt. Um, they are the ones that accredited your school. They are the ones that uh, lent money to students who attended your school, right? Um, so I think it's about um, people have the people had this back then had the sense that they were they'd been screwed, they'd been sold a bill of goods, they've been mistreated, and meeting other people in that same situation, sharing stories, and also learning more about the, the as Delaney just mentioned, the larger structures. Mm-hmm. That, to that situation, all mm-hmm. of that education, meeting people, talking, sharing stories, narrative, mm-hmm. um, and then working together to do something about it, mm-hmm. um, all sort of um, helps support this idea that we've been put in a situation through no fault of our own, and we can do something about it. 
So were you guys, I mean, coming out of Occupy, like obviously people were meeting physically in New York City after that with the Corinthian College and other for-profit college campaigns. Were you using some of the donated money to travel around to do debtor groups? Were you guys mostly relying on social media to bring people into the movement? Like how did you reach people in the different corners of the United States? I mean, we had no money. They're, all the money that was donated to, to Rolling Jubilee was used to cancel debt, but we did get... Um, some f- some small grant funds now I think even from the institute that Eleni works at now helped us out a f- mm. with a few thousand mm-hmm. dollars early on and so we we use social media um, this the the Rolling Jubilee bought and canceled some debt some tuition debt that was held by students who had attended a scam for profit school called Everest uh, mm. the parent company of Everest was called Corinthian so once we bought that debt um, we went we found those folks um, on Facebook. Um, and they were already organizing out in California meetings of students were already happening in the Los Angeles area. So we went out there and met with them, attended some of those meetings, learned about the work that they were already doing and offered our help. Um, so it was, you know, we had, we had no money, but we had, we were stubborn, angry New Yorkers (laughs) and, um, and we had bought this, bought and canceled this debt. And we, you know, we knew we, we had been doing the Rolling Jubilee for a while at that point, but we knew like, hey, can't, we're not going to cancel all the debt in the world. We actually need to use this tool that we have to, to organize. We knew that mm-hmm. we already had the debtors union um, framework in mind. People need to get together as debtors uh, along the model of labor unions, come together as a group yeah, and fight for change. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Eleni, how did you get plugged into the debt collective? And how did you, what did you start doing in terms of organizing? Um, I got plugged in, I guess, mostly thinking, working initially on this question of public institutions that themselves are indebted, and then they pass that debt on to workers mm-hmm. in the form of austerity contracts or no contracts uh, to sort of households in the form of student debt in the case of higher ed. But it's like we know now and, for, you know, all kinds of fees or fines to get healthcare, or get yourself out of prison or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so, so, so I, I mostly started just doing like a lot of political education with different sort of, I was traveling uh, alongside debt collective folks and alongside uh, working a lot with labor notes, uh, the nice. rank and file mm-hmm. um, a democratic workers organization and, um, and just really like focusing on the kind of political education, I think, around institutional debt. And then at some point, I just kind of stepped, realized that both my feet were in the debt world. Um, <laughs> right. And and also this, I guess this was about a year ago, which is when um, also things like sort of intensified with the student debt cancellation timeline, that it became clear that there was going to be a payment, you know, there was just the, the fight for student debt cancellation just really intensified. And I kind of stepped in, um, you know, more full-time capacity into doing the student debt stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, Because as you were saying with institutional debt, I know you, um, for instance, you wrote this op-ed in the New York times about institutional debt for K through 12 schools. That's right. Um, but you know, it was also making me think like about, uh, what we saw through Ferguson and Black Lives Matter about, you know, municipal debt and the way that people, you know, cities have been passing that on by trying to do the fees and fines, as you've said, through the criminal justice system or through other sorts of like legal systems and mentioned medical debt, Medicare for all. So there were, there was this way in which I think during, yeah, over the past 10 years, I think our conversations around individualized debt in our lives, family debt have, have 
been able to connect with these more structural right. conversations. And I think your guys's work is really a huge yeah. part of that. Yeah. Um, Eleni, for the on the institutional debt qu- question, um, yeah. what is the sort of time frame for that? Do you is there like a particular historical moment where you see institutions um, really like where debt starts becoming like a kind of like operational, almost sort of like a core operational principle of their of their yeah work? yeah. I mean, I, I guess it the, it would change depending on which set of institutions you're talking about. But uh-huh. a lot of how I've learned about this is from the, the work of the economic sociologist Wolfgang Streak, who talks about this kind of big transition that the the world really, but definitely the United States has gone through of the transition from what he calls like a, a tax state, where our welfare mm-hmm. institutions were financed through taxes, to a debt state where our welfare institutions are now financed through debt. Either the institutions themselves are borrowing money or people are receiving services, you know, the quote unquote welfare services that people are needing. They are themselves individually taking on debt. And so this is kind of part of this, like, you know, I guess to his, the the turning point, it's, it's, I guess other people would call it neoliberalism or austerity, but it's, it's um, when all the bad kind of, stuff happened. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like 40 ish exactly. years ago, 40, 45 years ago sort of thing. Yeah. I think, uh-huh. it, you know, it's in a lot of cases though, it's, it's for, if you talk about institutional debt, I think like, you know, school buildings, for example, have like almost always needed some kind of debt from the beginning of the Republic have kind of borrowed some kind of money. Uh, so it's not, it's, it's in some ways it's an old story. Um, and I've learned a lot from, but, but it's, it's become sort of more weaponized and intensified in the last 40 years. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about bringing your guys's organizing and your sort of rhetorical interventions to politicians. So I was thinking also about how, like in 2011, the United States formed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is starting to look at some of these debt concerns. Obviously, people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were very um, open to having some of these conversations with y'all. But now we have people like Biden who are having to answer to you. (laughs) So how do you get to that point? And at what point did you think that Wow, like we're gonna whichever Democratic president we get, they're actually going to do something about this. Um, and do you want to sort of take us through that? Yeah, I just I will take you into what I th- continue to think is was a very extraordinary event that I um, helped organize and, and participated in back in 2015. Um, the Debt Collective had launched a student debt strike with former for-profit college students. We had 15 borrowers who were the face of that strike, the Corinthian 15. Um, and it was, you know, a viral media sensation. And again, it's one of these moments where people around the country are re- recognizing their own story and the story of these borrowers who have come out and said, we we're in debt, we were screwed. Um, the Department of Education, so it was the Obama administration at the time, and the Secretary of Ed was Arne Duncan, and they invited us <laughs> to come to Washington to bring the strikers. So we did. So um, we um, flew a bunch of people out there, almost all the strikers, organizers from the D.C., from the Debt Collective. And, and we met around a big uh, table with um, Ted Mitchell, who was the undersecretary of education at the time, a bunch of lawyers um, on the phone were like attorneys general from around the country, wow. um, representatives from, from the CFPB, from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And during that meeting, borrowers from the, the scam the scam for profit school told their stories and they looked across the table at federal officials and said you are the reason I might have to live in a box in the street with my dog <laughs> right wow. mm. and 
to me, I think it, this is an extraordinary moment. The first time, as Eleni has mentioned, that this broad, long history of, of debt as a tool of social domination and all of that. But in, in our history of student debt, this is the first time borrowers had sat across the table from, from public officials who were responsible for their situation. Um, and it was a really powerful moment when it felt, it felt in that moment like the borrowers had the power in the room, yeah. you know. Um, right after that meeting happened, Arnie Duncan went on a TV show. I think it was like Chris Hayes or something. And again, this was back in 20, 2015. And one of the first questions Chris Hayes asked him was, what's going on with this debt strike? Nice. And, Dun- and Duncan was on the defensive in, immediately. Um, and one of the things he said, it was either in that interview or very soon after, was what, what people need to know is that higher education is still a good investment. Uh-huh. So, you know, what I took from that moment, from that series of events, is that the debtors, only 15 of them, all low income, all who had attended the scam school, suddenly ha- were, were, had leverage. They were pushing back. And the Department of Education was on its heels. And in fact, what Duncan was saying was not, we're going to look into this. I mean, they said a lot of that too. But what he was also <laughs> saying was he understood what we were really talking about was the whole structure of, of higher education and the yeah. debt financed nature of our crumbling, rotting um, public mm-hmm. college system. He understood that immediately. And he was concerned that people were going to hear about this strike, hear about this action being taken by people on the bottom of that system. And he he was worried that people in the middle, right, or even higher, were going to say, wait a minute, so, something's wrong with public higher ed? What's going on here? Well, that's what and I was even, wondering about with the yeah. Corinthian, because it, it was such an impressive campaign. And I think for people like us who are already sympathetic and sort of know that it's pointing to a larger structural thing. It's clear why a scam school is illustrative of the problems. But to somebody like Duncan, friend to charter schools, neoliberal privatizer, um, he might just say like, okay, those people, that's a different category because they were scammed, but that's not the same as going to University of Wisconsin at Madison or taking on debt to go to Reed or Oberlin or the City University of Mm -hmm. New York. So why Mm -hmm. are you smushing that all together? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that those folks knew immediately what, what the stakes were. So, you know, I think you, you, your question was getting federal officials to pay attention, or yeah. I, I think to me that was a moment when they were confronted literally across the table with this disaster that they were presiding over. Um, and also they understood the broader implications. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, Trump won the election and that changed the dynamic um, in, the, in the following years. But I think at that point, people in those positions understood that something was going to have to happen. Gotcha. Yeah. Eleni, as you you were saying, like in the last year, um, you got way more involved in the specifically student debt stuff. And I know you've um, mm-hmm. been writing a lot about it, too. You had a great piece in mm-hmm. The New Yorker about older people taking on student mm-hmm. debt, which was sort of shocking. Um during this Biden administration moment, like what did you notice about kind of bringing the movement stuff to the political it's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of pausing to gather my thoughts because I don't know if I've thought about it in that, in that term before. I guess, you know, one of the things that I think was very striking was some of the work that the Debt Collective did prior to me really kind of stepping into the fold, but definitely building off of the Anne's legacy and other folks was, was establishing the executive office's power to cancel debts. And I think that was mm-hmm. a very important piece and something that maybe has been a bit sort of not, you know, they, they, there was really sort of a kind of important move that Debt Collective did was to request a FOIA for the memo that 
that folks in the debt collective knew existed that confirmed the executive office's power to cancel federally held student debts. And this was this is kind of the whole smoking gun of this particular campaign of the federal student debt campaign, because mm-hmm. it confirms the whole strat the whole organizing strategy, which is which is that you know the federal government can and should cancel all student debts. Um, but you know there was sort of a process of understanding that sort of it was we kind of had this moment of like. They know, we know, they know <laughs> that the memo exists, <laughs> yeah. but nobody wanted to talk about it. There, when we finally got a copy of the memo, it was heavily redacted that sort of um, made it more difficult. But basically, we had sort of months of organizing that was basically like kind of this it, sort of the organizing had this flavor of like, we know you're in there, Biden. <laughs> like, <laughs> we know you're in there, Joe. We know you know what you can do. And we know that you are actually choosing not to. And every day that you sit inside the Oval Office and you choose not to cancel debt is a day that you know you have that power. And you're just having this sort of Bartleby the Scrivener moment of, moment of <laughs> I'd rather not, you know? I prefer not to change people's lives when I could change people's lives. And it really made for sort of an interesting set of, you know, a few, a, a, the, between, I think, when this, the memo came out, which was around, I, I think it was maybe around October or something, let's say, of 2021, late, okay. late summer, early fall. Um, I could be wrong on that, but that's my general sense. And then, you know, figuring out how do we move Biden on this point? Um, and our power analysis, I, re- I remember a, a call with, with, Jane McAlevey, the great labor organizer, and she was kind of like, okay, so give me the quick like run. Like who's what's the power analysis here? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Astra was on the call, Astra Taylor, and she was like, it's actually, we kind of hate to say it, but it's really the old man. It's really Joe who holds the power. And so we had to kind of figure out how do we move Joe on this issue? Um, and that kind of set some of our, or, you know, trying to figure out, okay, who's going to, who's Biden going to listen to? How do we get this to be, right. how do we yeah. make this obvious as not just this sort of like rich young person's issue, which has been totally misunderstood. The student debt crisis has been mm-hmm. totally, totally misunderstood as a yeah. problem of, kind of young, upwardly mobile people. Um, do you want to just be, say quickly, yeah. like how that works? Cause I think, um, yeah, like h- how is it that the federal government can just cancel debt? Sure. Just the quick kind of quick and dirty. Yeah. Well, they're they are the the entity that issued the debt, and they have, um, you know, they have under the 1965 Higher Ed Act this this power to to compromise and settle the debt that they have issued. Um, and so this is also part, you know, that authority. That, you know, this every the point kind of got proven mm-hmm. with the COVID payment pauses, which right. uh, the moment that the government put federal student loans on payment pause proved that they had this authority uh, to, to sort of act unilaterally on, on, you know, 45 million people's student debt payments. Mm-hmm. And also that proved this other important point that was very critical, which is that they actually don't need this money. <laughs> like two and a half years of, of, you know, regular old government took place without student loan payments right. being made yeah. under the payment clause. <laughs> and so it doesn't uh, affect like the Citibank loans and the other private loans, but we're talking about right. the yeah, government, the, the U.S. government Exactly. Loans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so we should kind of, so I guess two things I wanted to talk about, like one is you guys obviously wanted more, you know, yeah. than the 10,000 basically that were 
getting yeah. or the 20, depending on the, the kind of loan. Um, at some point, you know, or the demand has sort of consistently been cancel all student debt and make education a free and public good, right? Um, right. So why is the number 10,000? Um, what do you think about that? Um, you know, who's left out? Well, I actually want to say that I think one of the, the there's certainly the problem with the number of 10,000, uh, which is just, it's far too little. You know, the mm-hmm. average student debtor has like closer to $40,000 in student loans okay. than 10,000, you know, then they have, I think it's like 36,000 is what the quote unquote average student debtor is. So, um, and so it's, it's just for most people, it's far too little for, for many people who have been in sort of the, the most dire straits with their student loans and have enrolled in, in things like income driven repayment plans, which adjust your, your payment according to your income. This is actually going to do ten thousand dollars of cancellation. Is going to change truly nothing on the amount of loan that you're going to pay. Um, mm-hmm. So for a lot of people who are suffering the most, this is like really laughable. This that this is the relief that's being offered. Um, okay. So there's that that it's just the it's actually just sort of yeah. insignificant. And in some people, I mean, we we had a debtors assembly last week, and people came into that for for. 50-year-olds, people who are 50 and older who are pledging to go on strike in January when the payments resume. We had a, 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 an assembly, a meeting of those people last week. And people were so mad. They were like mad. There were several people that were like, I almost didn't come to this meeting tonight. I'm so oh, mad no, about <laughs> what had happened because it's it's it feels like an insult almost. Uh, you know, the president right now, it's is sort of having this like almost rolling jubilee style comms thing. <laughs> the way he's like his his tweet his Twitter feed is like, you know, wow, it feels so great to cancel this debt. Look at how great it is. Look at all these lives. People are writing to me saying their lives are changed. It's sort of like the message that the debt collective has been offering for years now. Like, yeah, it turns out like people like people's lives are different when they're not crushed by debt. Uh, <laughs> That that the president is offering this at the same time that he's not recognizing that he's actually his policy has maintained the same debt burden for many people at the same time that he's sort of eliminated it from twenty million people. I mean, yeah. That being said, twenty million is like twenty million people whose lives will be totally different because yeah. they don't have debt. That's like not you know for insignificant sure. and yeah. really important and uh, wouldn't have happened without organizing. I, I, the thing that mm-hmm. I want to say really quick though is that. This is a point that that my debt collective colleague and sort of uh, organizer extraordinaire Tiffany Lofton made, which is that at this point, the president has not canceled any debt. The president has established a policy path for people to submit an application to have up to ten or $20,000 of their yeah, debt Yeah, I was canceled. curious about that. Okay. So the application yeah. is actually like, in some ways, for me, the bigger loss isn't that we got a small amount of $10,000, but it's that it, people are going to have to apply for it. It's to me, I think actually the more violent... Um, um, machination of of this of the president's policy. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know you have thoughts on on the sort of application procedure and stuff. I mean, how onerous is it from the outside? We might just think, okay, you have to fill out some paperwork. What's the big deal? I mean, I don't think we know, do we, Eleni? I don't know. The application hasn't even been released yet. They don't gotcha. even know what mm-hmm. the application. It hasn't. They said there's going to be an application, but it still doesn't exist. Right. Okay. So early days, basically. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Can I just say one thing about the application? Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. You know, there was um, this piece in the New Yorker that I wrote about older folks who have student Mm -hmm. debt. There was a 91-year-old woman who's kind of the the main character of that piece. And two weeks after I sent her that piece, she still, I sent her 
a link to the piece. I sent her a PDF of the piece. Her family had all sent her links to the piece. She still hadn't read it because she hadn't figured out exactly how to get the link open from her email. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. How is that woman going to apply for debt cancellation? (laughs) Um, Yeah. I know. I feel like this is like a, you know, Obamacare or like IRS type situation where it's like in other places, like, I don't know, whatever other, insert almost any other country. They basically just tell you, well, this is the tax that you owe, right? Because they already know. Right. Exactly. Um, But instead you have to fill out a 1040. Um, Yeah. Right. I wanted to get into the sort of like usual critiques of this. So, you know, you guys have been uh, defending yourselves against different criticisms of this movement for a long time, but I I guess I'll just pick out kind of the one that I think is the most influential on the left, which is that um, debt cancellation is not a good use of resources um, given what it accomplishes for whom. So one version of this I think goes, um, you know, and I think this was especially um, influential when in terms of talking about like the cancellation of all debt, but it's like, oh, well, you're just going to cancel the debt of people who go to elite medical schools and law schools mm-hmm. and they already have money and they have a huge earning potential. So why would we waste our federal dollars on that when we could more properly, you know, direct targeted, um, you know, welfare state benefits to poor people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also maybe like a racial component of that, which is even though we know that student debt disproportionately affects uh, or has a disproportionate effect on black people in certain ways, um, returning to that argument, you would just say, okay, but if, again, if we cancel all debt, you're not really getting it mostly to black Mm -hmm. people. It's like white and other privileged people who, you know, whatever, again, are going to Harvard Med School or whatever, the sort of more cartoonish version of that. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you guys think about that? How, what do you usually say to people about that? And, um, you know, what in terms of that critique, with it being limited right now to that 10 or 20,000, does that sort of answer that critique? Um, you know, how, how are you thinking about that, Anne? I mean, I'm sure Eleni could talk more about this because I've read what she's written about it, but it's this idea that debt is held by people by rich people is totally ridiculous. There's no evidence for it. It's absolutely insane. Rich people don't take out student loans. The vast majority uh, of student loans are held by, um, by working class folks. Um, and it's, it's almost too ridiculous to, you know, <laughs> to even have to keep swatting it away. And the fact that like progressives um, are sort of convinced by this, I just, I don't even know what to say. I just think people need to, I don't know, think a little bit more, do the reading. I don't know. Talk to people who know what they're talking about. Um, it's, it's, it's offensive <laughs> to be honest. Um, but what I want to say about this, you know, and I, I do think there are some good faith, you know, progressives, people who consider themselves on the left who are concerned, you know, about this and who, oh, what kind of, what are we saying about um, upwardly mobile college graduates, even though yeah. 40% of student debtors don't have degrees. I want to sort of grant that some good faith people have concerns that deserve to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But here, here's what I would say. This debt relief, as Eleni said, is a, is a drop in the bucket. It's almost nothing. It's an insult in many ways. But what the debt relief does is it says, look, the public sector can come in and correct mm-hmm. some of the tyrannies of the private sector. Yeah. Like we've got a public sector mm-hmm. when it comes to healthcare too and other areas, but especially in higher ed, that mm-hmm. is now all, it's run by the private sector. We've got public institutions that are taking out debt to, you know, that have Wall Street loans. 
right? We have gutted the public sector over the last few decades, and that's the problem. We need public, we need fully funded public goods. Right. So what the debt relief does is it gives people a taste of the fact that the public sector can come in and do things. We can yeah. start correcting yeah. the private sector errors. We can start making these things right again. We can actually do it in a proactive way and build something better that works for ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And really, that's a very, very small taste of socialism that I think the elites cannot let people have. Mm-hmm. We cannot allow people to even ask the question, hey, could could the government do something to help me? <laughs> like that that question cannot even be asked. I mean, we are a rich country. Look at how much money we spend on the military. I think if if elites cannot allow ordinary people to think, right, to have a small taste of socialism, to have a small taste that the public sector can come in and and do anything. And that's really what what's at stake here is that idea. Mm. Eleni, what about you? Your response to that, that yeah, I mean, sort of argument. I guess like uh, plus one to everything Anne said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and also, I guess, you know, you can you can kind of empathize with the good sense that people are trying to get at with that kind of question, which is that, you know, why should that there's a sort of there's a sense of like the people that need the most relief should get the most relief. Sure, what is the yeah. system that's going to give us that in the most that's charitable right. interpretation? I think that's what people are trying to get at when mm-hmm. they ask this question. Um. I, I think I, I would, I agree with much of that sentiment. Um, I think there's a misconception, as Anne said, about what debt is. Debt is, in fact, the means test. The, the, the poorer that you are, the more money you have to borrow, the longer it will take you to pay it off, the more you will end up paying in interest and fees over the long run. Um, right. So that, you know, the less access you have to wealth, the more you're, you're sort of trapped by debt. Um, I, I think there's like, that is the means test. And so I think sometimes people don't fully appreciate that is actually the mechan- that, that sort of fundamental characteristic of debt, especially debt for, for things that are all but mandatory, like healthcare or higher education, um, this kind of like welfare institution to, to access welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the second thing too, is that I, I, I'm, I'm always concerned when people ask that question of like, it's actually not the, the, that, that balancing of the scales that they're pining for in that question is not going to be best administered by debt relief. That's actually would be much better addressed. The state has much more sophisticated and direct yeah. and efficient resources to do that on the front end with an actual progressive taxation policy where corporations and wealthy folks are actually paying more um, and I, I think that's the part that I, I, I this, as, as Anne was saying, this kind of like this intervention that debt relief does is an intervention debt relief, but it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not everything. It's not an omnibus corrective for, 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 yeah. mm-hmm. for everything. So there should be ways that, you know, the rich are paying, the people that have more should be paying more. The, the sort of the need for universal debt cancellation, I think is, Maybe, yeah, sure. Maybe there's some people that don't quite deserve it that get included in it. I would prefer to live in a world where they are granted relief than the people that really need the relief the most mm-hmm. aren't eligible to access it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I, I don't know, I guess for me, something important about your guys' movement too has been this idea that there are some things that everyone should have. Like right. we don't have to means yeah. test everything. We don't have to right. have, right. you know, the, these kind of like slots and segments right. for every kind of benefit and, right. and good in our society, right. That's right. Um, which I think like is also why I think 
you know, not means t- testing Medicare, for instance, is very important, et cetera. So That's right. um, on that point, though, um, Eleni, of, of kind of, you know, having a larger vision. So, I mean, when I think we can start kind of winding down the show by talking about next steps, because, you know, the debt relief for you guys has always just been part of a larger vision of a, a public welfare state that works for everybody, you know. So, um, so I guess two things, like one, talk about, you know, what the sort of concrete next steps are in just closing the book on Biden's plan. So obviously we need to get an application form. We need to see, you know, sort of like what the regulatory processes are around this. Um, And then the second part is just like the bigger picture stuff. Like, does the debt collective still continue to do its work? And what does that work look like? What are, what are the sort of next goals for you guys? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Eleni, why don't you start and then Anne? I think how I've come to see what the Biden's move is, is the Biden administration's debt relief plan didn't achieve a goal for the debt collective. It did not cancel all the debt. It did not create college free for all. Um, But it did confirm a method, which is that debtors Mm -hmm. when organized have power and can force wins even (laughs) from a president who really, really didn't want to have to do this. I mean, he really (laughs) didn't want to cancel debt. Yeah, sure. He made some campaign promises. But this was not, he really, if he had wanted to cancel debt, he would have done it day one when he stepped into office. He wouldn't have waited two and a half years. Like, anyways, so so <laughs> I think that's the lesson here, which is that people, debtors, organized debtors have quite a bit of pow- power. Yeah. Um, and so thinking through, okay, what is the next, you know, the application is not, a, that's not a win for us that that the relief is coming through an application but how do we use that to as a as a moment where we can gather to create more power mm-hmm. so we've thought about things this is i think you know we're a bit too early to to know exactly what this could look like but but um like what you know the legacy that Anne offered during the corinthian strike and the borrowed defense like how do we use the applications that people are going to have to do as a way to actually draw people together to collectively yeah, okay complete these applications, submit them en masse in boxes to the department. I mean, how do we use what they're trying to take as a mm-hmm. kind of divide and conquer and atomize that? How do we take that as a chance to be like, no, we we are <laughs> we are organized debtors. We come together. We have power when we're together uh, and just yeah. kind of keep doing that. So, so, so the application process, I think the other thing too is that as of right now, the payments will resume on January 1st, 2023. And so we're, you know, at the Debt Collective, we're still, we have, uh, you know, every day more and more people are joining a, a pledge to strike, uh, to refuse to, to, to pay back their loans. And so thinking about how do we keep building up that that debt strike, um, I think is is part of kind of the, the organizing tasks ahead of us. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, a plus one to everything Eleni said. I think that that's right. This 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 uh, win confirms, and also, you know, we should also add to this conversation that the debts of former for-profit college students have also been canceled recently as mm-hmm. a direct result right. of the yeah. debt collectives' work. Former Corinthian students, the school that I mentioned earlier, uh, a scam for-profit school. Um, but the debts of all students that attended that campus will be canceled, as well as students who attended ITT Tech, another for-profit school. Yes. Um, so, and there are others. So, so the wins. This ten thousand dollars is one of the of of a series of wins that really the debt collective has had, and that debtors, organized debtors, have had in the last year or so. So, just want to put that out there. Yeah, thank um, you. We should have mentioned that. Yeah, I think you know. I want to say a little bit more about this idea of the method that Eleni mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly right. And I think what 
what the, the, the series of wins also shows for me is um, it's a method of organizing along class lines. That's mm-hmm. a method of social change that I think has been proven time and time again to be effective. And what that means, for example, in, in the debt collectives case is we organized with people who shared an economic condition. Um, yeah. And we didn't care, you know, what, what else, who else they were, like what, what opinions they had necessarily. We might disagree with them. We might agree with them. We, there were no, you know, political litmus tests for borrowers. It was, are you in the same economic situation as all these other people? And if so, you're in the movement. And to yes. me, that is a, is an organizing model along class lines that I believe in that I think works. I think it's, uh, that that has been proven correct, especially in the case of the, the for-profit college uh, hmm. borrowing for profit college campaign. Um, I would also say, and, you know, Eleni can speak more about this is these, we need more working class organizations. Labor unions yeah. are great. The debt collective modeled itself on labor unions on the debtors union. The idea is, is rooted in this, you know, a labor union model. At the same time, we need working class organizations of all kinds. People drive Uber now, they drive Lyft, they do, you know, they deliver food on their bikes. Like not everybody is um, is in a place where they can join a labor union where that's possible, but your debt follows you everywhere, right? So yeah, working class organizations that bring people together along class lines, bring people together that share an economic condition, we need more of those. And those organizations need to be supported and funded. I mean, one of the problems uh, with organizing something like this is just you never have any money. There's never money. You yeah. can't pay people. You can't go. You can't, you know, get people together to have a meeting. Um, everything we did was tooth and nail. Was us mm-hmm. digging into our own pockets, us taking time out of our own lives, you know, taking semesters off our own studies so that we could do this work. Um, and for folks listening in on this call who want to know, you know, how to support, I, I think it's about donating for sure, but there, it's also about working together to figure out ways, how can organizations like the Debt Collective be supported? How can we create you know, um, longstanding, working class led institutions that support people to do the kind of organizing work that needs to happen? I think those are some open questions for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and people in, you know, people who maybe have student debt, maybe paid off their debt, maybe you're doing a little bit better, who have the time and resources, um, there are ways that, like, we need your help. Um, yeah. Everybody needs to get involved in trying to figure out, you know, philanthropy is not the answer, in my experience. Um, yeah. It's great for small grants and things like that. But how do we actually build working class institutions? And how do we support them? I think that's an open question that we can mm. uh, mm-hmm. talk about. So people can still donate to the Duck Collective, they can also join the Duck Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, it will continue, you guys will continue to exist and continue to do this work. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it also bears noting that student debt is kind of the um, the biggest campaign and the oldest, perhaps, in the debt collective. But uh, we're hard at work on uh, medical debt cancellation, yeah, carceral debt cancellation, okay. housing debt cancellation. Uh, we're beginning new projects on the, the question of climate debt, uh, which oh, is interesting. Okay. I, I think, you know, student debt is not uh, the work doesn't stop. Even when all the student debt gets canceled, uh, I think we'll still have work at the debt collector yeah. to do. I, yeah. We, we're, no, we're trying to organize true. ourselves out of jobs, but we're not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're getting a little closer. Yeah. Um, thank you guys so much. I'm just really in awe of the work of your movement over the past decade. And um, I know there's going to be a lot more going on ahead. So um, thank, thank you guys you. for joining. Time to say goodbye. It's really Great good to talking. be with you. Thanks so much.
Thank you, Tammy. Um, Thanks to all our listeners for being with us this week. As usual, you know where to find us on Substack and Twitter and email and all this stuff. Um, Thank you for uh, the support of our producer, May, and we'll see you guys with Jay next week. Uh